Welcome to Creative Distillation, where we distill entrepreneurship research into actionable insights. I am your host, Jeff York, Research Director of the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship, as well as a professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado Boulder, Leeds School of Business. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host. I'm Brad Werner. I'm the Teaching Director of the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado. These titles, Jeff, are starting to sound like some of the titles of some of the research papers we've been talking about. I could keep going, Brad. I, you want me to do a few you know, more? It's, it's I'm like also a uh, research fellow at the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute. I'm the division chair of the Division for Social Responsibility and Sustainability. I think I got some other ones I could pull up. Oh, I'm the I'm the uh, division chair of the Organizations and Natural Environment Research Division of the Academy of Management. Yes. I serve on the editorial board uh, also of oh, Organization Science, the Academy of Management Journal, the Journal of Business Venture, Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice, Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal, and a dad. And that's the most important title of all, Brad. You know what, though? It's, it's like going to the Westminster Dog Show. You just gave your entire title, but we'll call you Max. <laughs> <laughs> We did. We did tend to collect titles in academia. You know. You know why they do that. I mean, this is just like corporate setting. Like you give people titles, you don't have to give them money. Uh, it works out really well. Oh, nice. I'll take the money. Like, oh, you're good. You're going to be a vice president. It's a very <laughs> important role. Yeah, with the other thousand. <laughs> that is very true. So, how are you doing, Brad? Have you enjoyed the snow this week in Boulder? Oh, you went you went skiing yesterday, did you not? I actually, I, I I had the bag skiing yesterday. I just got too busy, uh, but I did something yesterday that was actually new for me in Boulder. Is I went snowshoeing up the mountain. Really? Uh, so I I needed to get out. It was freaking awesome. Normally, I'm I'm reluctant to bring my dog because of all the high altitude cactus and all that type of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. But with a foot of snow, he came with me and was running all over the mountains. It was it was it was fabulous. Very cool. I, uh, you know what? I've never been snowshoeing. I've lived in Colorado for 10 years. Never been. Uh, you think well, we've I'd got snowshoes here for you and your wife if you ever want to use them. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you just went and bought something. You didn't rent them or anything? No, I've, I've had them for 10 years. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, okay. So you've used them, but you're from Chicago. You guys have to snowshoe there. Oh yeah. You know, it's just like the old days when I had to walk 10 miles to school and all that kind of stuff. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the country times, as my, my kids say. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, we played banjos and walked on snowshoes and didn't have no <laughs> Facebook. Oh, Facebook's not cool at all. I shouldn't even mention that. My kids have been telling me. I'm super excited because I just got on the list to get vaccinated. So I am totally psyched. Um, telling everybody I know how to try to do what I did. And uh, hopefully we can all get vaccinated and start recording this thing real soon in person, which we all look forward to because we miss hanging out in breweries uh, and seeing each other. No question. And seeing our guests in person. But on the upside of the pandemic, we've been able to bring guests in from far, far without uh, you know having to delve into the massive creative distillation uh, podcast budget that we usually lavishly bestow upon all our guests. So uh, I want to welcome today's guest, uh, Dr. Greg Fisher who is the Larry and Barbara Sharp Professor of Entrepreneurship at Indiana University at the Kelly School of Business. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here. It is awesome to see you, my friend. Uh, Greg and I have known each other, what, uh, 12 years, maybe? I don't even know. Uh, introduced at the Darden Lally Entrepreneurship Retreat. That's about right, yeah. That was the good old days where you would get together with a bunch of cool people and hang out and enjoy each other's company and drink mint juleps on the lawn there at, uh, at UVA. Uh, Talk <laughs> academic stuff 
all we can, which Brad would have loved. <laughs> oh, I would love that. <laughs> I will I will say one thing though. Indiana University is a beautiful campus. Living oh, in Boulder is a great place to go. But I actually would say that Indiana, your university, Greg, is 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 close. It is it's that beautiful. Yeah, I mean it's a similar kind of college town feel to Boulder. Boulder is amazing, incredibly expensive to live. We can get something of the same feel for about half the price. This is true. That's nice. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an awesome place. And and what you might not be aware of, Brad, or you might I don't know, they have uh, arguably the top entrepreneurship research faculty in the country right now. They have literally just snagged up every great person I wanted to hire before I could hire them for the past probably five six maybe even longer years. They have just a wonderful, wonderful group there. And they just hired one of our students. Oh, did they? Who, who got hired? Uh, Brittany Lambert. Will be oh, nice. job there. So uh, fantastic hire for them and uh, great outcome for Brittany. I know she is super excited and uh, I'm just excited for it. So Greg, your brewery that you picked, it's called Upland Brewing Company, right? Upland Brewing, yeah. On this bottle I've got here, so I found two beers in Boulder from Upland Brewing Company. Upland Sour Ales is what it says on the label, though. You're saying these guys really lean into the, the sour ale thing. Yeah, so Upland was a tiny little brewery in Bloomington, Indiana. And then a bunch of sort of local investors got together with a guy who was sort of marshalling energy around the sort of craft brew movement sometime, sometime around the early 2000s. They got together and said, well, could we turn this into something that's a little a little more significant, got a little bit more momentum, bigger impact and so on. And at that stage, the market was already being somewhat flooded with craft breweries, especially around this area. You know, you go up towards Chicago, towards Lake Michigan, and there's, there's plenty of them. And so they said, well, uh, one way to differentiate ourselves is by creating or generating brewing sours. And so they really lent into this whole idea of uh, sour ales, and um, started by doing it sort of as a once a year release and really constraining supply and generating demand and a bit of buzz around it oh. and um, have gone further than that. And, and they've built out a whole, what they call the wood shop, because these things are uh, fermented in, in, in wooden barrel crate things. So they've got a whole facility now dedicated to sours. Cool. Uh, I haven't That's opened great. this beer yet. I'm looking at the label is gorgeous. Uh, it's like an abstract expressionist art, maybe. I don't know. It's very cool. I'm going to go ahead and open this and see what it's like. So, so Greg, I'm from Chicago and I've been in Boulder coming up on five years now. And what I've noticed talking to you, though, is the accents in Indiana have gotten a little thicker since I've left. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, <laughs> this is a typical Midwestern accent. Uh, we, we've changed <laughs> things up a little here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to come back. I got to I got to reacclimate over there. Cheers, guys. Cheers. All right, so I'm smelling this thing. Wow. So it's got serious bread of myces. This comes from the tradition of brewing uh lambics, uh Belgian spontaneously fermented ales, usually brewed around the the Brussels region. Oh. And what they do is they brew the wort uh, as the unfermented beer is called and then pump it up to the roof and put it out in giant vats open to the sky. Uh, let it sit up there and cool overnight, become infected with the wild bacteria and yeast. And then they put it into barrels that they've kept for sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years. They're very valuable. You never want to lose the barrel. You also never want to clean a lambic brewery. It's like the opposite of everything you normally do in brewing, which is why everything's sterile, clean, no wild yeast. 
and you just this thing just reeks of wild yeast. I mean, it's described as horse blanket, Brad. You'll like that descriptor. So, Brad, what are your first impressions of this? Okay, you know what? When this was on the roof, I think that we had some raccoons walking by because this is fucking bad. Oh my God. How do you drink? I mean, are you drinking this truly for pleasure or just to show that you can here, we can go and find a lake, cut a hole in the ice and do a polar bear thing for a manly thing. This is brutal. It's an acquired taste. Acquired. <laughs> I think it's phenomenal. I think it smells great. Truthfully, but taste. Oh, all right. You got to take a couple of sips. Is, is this can of camera? Is there a side bet somewhere to see how much of this you guys can get me to drink? Something like me like else is going on I here. bought like a Belgian ale one time. My buddies were like, oh, dude, we know good beer. We've drank Sierra Nevada pale ale. And this is crap. Like, you know, this is something wrong with this. We like took it back to the beer store and demanded our money back. I'm not the only one in the room here, though. Greg, is this your forte? These things do grow on you, Brad. They do. The first time I went to Upland, and I'm, I'm now going to experience the whole sour experience. And I got this, and I was like, what the hell? But the more time you spend and you sort of hear the story behind it, they genuinely do grow on you. And, and, and you know, there, there is that notion in entrepreneurship that what you want to try and do is polarize people, put them at one end of the continuum or the other. And that's what these guys have done. They've sort of said, hey, either you're in this sour's game and you want to you want to participate. And if you don't like it, get away. Normally, I'm on the front end of the curve, but this one, I think I'm going to be on the laggards. I think that... Uh, <laughs> We're going to get you there, man. We just got to go to Belgium to go interview some people. We'll get, we'll get Sophie to take us on a tour of Belgian breweries, although she likes wine better. That'd be cool. Man, this, it smells great, though, truthfully. And my son, so my son went to brew school in Germany. Poured, I mean, he's a really huge fan of these sour beers, but I just... And he you know, looks at me like I'm crazy when I hand one back to him, but I just... For me, it's not resonating, at least not yet. Uh, maybe after a bottle of bourbon. I mean, look <laughs> at it too. Like it's just got such a cool, like cloudy, like farm made appearance. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. I love this stuff. This one, I mean, I, I love sour ales. I, I need Joel to pop in here for a second. I need I need a little help. Joel, are you drinking this thing too? I'm not. I'm drinking coffee. I know to, I know better than to drink that kind of beer. <laughs> yeah okay uh, so what we're drinking is, is sorry I'm, I'm there with you brad when, when joel sent me the list of what beers jeff had picked out i was like oh this is going to be interesting well that's just that's the only upland beers they had like because upland makes non-sours as well right yeah they make a, a pretty good wheat um they make something called uh, uh champagne velvet which was actually a pilsner recipe that was discovered in indiana pre-prohibition and cool. they sort of recreated it but sours are what travel more broadly across the u.s so that's why this is what you get in colorado right and 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 this will compete in the boulder market you know i just went to the beer store there's there's like 250 beers from boulder on the wall yeah. like much less it colorado. is insane it's, it's insane like i mean and they've got like these two bottles and and i mean if you're gonna bring something in it's got to be different right and I think that's what these guys have figured out. A really nice niche strategy of like, hey, we're going to be the sour brewery of, of uh, Bloomington and and uh, the hipper parts of Indiana and people, and then we're going to go wider with it. I guess. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've been that, – that maybe – is this brewery like out near that little town that's near where you go mountain bike? It's not even a town. It's like where the vinegar place – Oh, that, that little let's, town in Indiana? Let's, let's be specific here, guys. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, no. <laughs> Greg, you know what I'm talking about. There's a place. There's yeah, like it's a called Nashville. Nashville. 
is where yeah. where we go mountain biking. Right, and exactly. That's a different brewery. That's oh, okay. uh, that's called Quaffon uh, Brewery. Yes, that's right. And they have a, another thing called Great Woods. It's a distillery, I think, this part yep. of them. Yeah. And they have a little branch there in Bloomington as well. Correct. But, yeah, that's my, we just went through the knowledge of, my knowledge of beer around Bloomington that I've uh, gained from my visits there. I, I want, I'm going to this place. This is fantastic. I'll go, but I'm going to bring my wine with me. So here we go. This is the first time at Creative Distillation. Fred's holding up a glass of wine now. Okay, if you looked at my desk, right, the cameras and the mics and all this setup, and then this is the line of booze. Uh, because when I heard Sours today, I figured this was a setup towards me, and I had to have a backup. And there's no way that you can talk <laughs> academic up. papers without booze. So here at three in the <laughs> afternoon, Boulder time, I'm going with a little bit of white wine before it's five o'clock and I can have some bourbon. So cheers. Well, I, I really like this brewery and I'm definitely going to go. So what we're having here is the Golden Brew. Uh, it's dry hopped with Eureka and citrus. It's a barrel aged sour. Um, let's see, it doesn't taste really that strong to me. I guess they don't have to list alcohol in Indiana. Uh, 5.6 is mine. Oh, 5.6. Yeah. This is a nice, like, yeah, you could just pound these, like, you know, uh, 5.6. Brad, this is a perfect summer beverage. You could have, like, you know, three of these, not be too badly affected. It'd yeah, I could put a nail in my hand, too. But <laughs> like, uh, you know, what the hell? <laughs> this stuff is brutal. I mean, All right, so, it's an acquired so what you're taste. looking for in these sour ales, it's dry hop, too. I really like, I think the dry hopping, like, balances out some of the sourness, makes it a little more approachable, despite what Brad says. Because some of the sour ales you get out here, I mean, like there's a place called Crooked Stave in Denver and all they do is sours and their their deal is like, you know, they're kind of like the, I mean, uh, they're a great brewery, don't get me wrong, but they're kind of like the the IPAs that like peel the enamel off your teeth, but the sour ones, it's like you have to take a few sips where you can even taste anything after that. So sort of like Sour Patch Kids almost, it's almost a, a chemical type sourness, but this is delicious. Uh, well, mine's waiting for you in the fridge anytime you come on down the hill. I'll, uh, I'll roll right back down there and get because we have a blackberry one too, but uh, we'll have to see how long we talk. I'm also getting like some grapefruit in this, like uh, instead of the traditional like sweet tart sourness. It's really nice. Well, they say it's got citra, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Like so, citra is like um, citra and sour. Mm. Yeah, and and, that, and Eureka also is not like I mean there's these are traditional like IPA hops. Like these are big American. You know, usually you don't really worry about the hops, but I'm getting it in the aroma here too. Well, I like it. I like it a lot. It is Jeff approved and recommended. And you just, just ignore anything Brad says about beer because he no, just. Well, you know, here's not... what I would say this summer. He doesn't like pumpkin beer even. Oh, God. Ugh. This summer, a Cubs game and some Pabst, that, that's a good beer. And that's a good day, right? Being outside, I do that all day long. Uh, I'll, I'll take a case of paps for for this. Oh my god, it's 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 just it's brutal. I'm glad you trade you a few paps for this. It's really good. Thank you for the recommendation, Greg. I'm sorry my coast is not more receptive, uh, but you yeah. know, we'll, we'll come visit and uh, he can. I will say this: he has an amazing collection of whiskeys. Uh, we always love to have the Dimming Center gatherings over at Brad's house. Anytime Dimming Center party. It's got to be at Brad's because it won't just be like, you know, you know, you know, when you go to people's parties and they're like, you know, they'll have a cooler beer around the back porch and that's nice. Everybody has beer. Not, not Brad's house. He'll have all these whiskeys out and they're like good stuff. Like some of which you've never heard of. It's just, it's an awesome experience. You just got to have an Uber Ray at the end of the night. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. Well, so Greg, uh, we're going to talk about your paper today, Entrepreneurial Hustle. And here on Creative Distillation, we're always trying to find good new entrepreneurial research to distill because, you know, we want to try to communicate that to our students at the Deming Center and also to our alums and other stakeholders that are interested in what the center is up to. And so uh, I want to, first of all, thank you for the title of this paper, because it could have very easily been called Do the Hustle, <laughs> and it wasn't. So thank you for that. You know, that we have this thing of like putting something before a colon and then explaining what the paper is actually about. So Brad always likes the stuff before the colon. And then we, when we do the rest of it and he's like, what the hell? So let's hear the um, full title. Yeah. You know, this could have been Brad, this could have been a paper just called do the hustle, <laughs> like with an allusion to the, the disco song. Yeah. And that would have been painful, right? That's no, uh, it, right. It's better than some of the other titles we've discussed actually. Well, so this one is called entrepreneurial hustle. You like that, right? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like something you might pick up. And, and I actually read, read the abstract. Yeah, exactly. While I was looking through the library at this paper. And so the link that you sent me, Jeff, uh, took me directly to a place to purchase. And when I noticed that the price was $49 to read about the entrepreneurial hustle, I'm thinking no f***ing way. That's a bargain. Bargain. Yeah, Greg, why did you price your paper at $49? Like, I mean, what a terrible pricing model. It'll change your life, Greg. It'll change your life. <laughs> <laughs> How many have you sold, Greg? It's, it's like buying a good self-help program. <laughs> are there more than 10 people in your family? No. <laughs> well, so you're, you're talking about something that's interesting. Not to get on a sidetrack, but we will. Because uh, I want to talk about Greg's paper. There's this, um, there's this thing in academia. It's a really interesting business models that these journals have. Or I should say the publishers of these journals have. Where, you know, Greg and I and others, we write these papers. We submit them. We really hope they'll publish them. Uh, we're happy when they do. We get paid nothing for that. And then the journal sells the access to that information at a very high rate, as you've pointed out, Brad, to academic universities. They're not trying to sell you a subscription, right? That's it's a university level subscription. And that's the business model. A lot of people are really uh, unhappy about that. Well, and I would also that, say, it's, though, it's super tough to break paid, out of, right? You guys, you guys have lifetime appointments. I would say, and the expectations are that you produce these. Is that correct? Yeah. So in, in a sense, you are paid, right, to do this. Oh, yeah. So don't get me wrong, but the lifetime value of a journal, I mean, somebody, I saw somebody said something about like a journal pub and a pub as far as how that affects your salary over your career. It's, it's a significant impact, big time. It affects the kind of jobs you can get. As a lay person that I am, everybody's heard the term publish or perish. What happens to an academic if they don't publish? Is there is their career over? I, I mean, I, I actually don't know. Depends on if they have tenure or not. <laughs> so you publish to get tenure. And once you have tenure, you can stop if you, if you like it? Well, I can speak for what would happen to you at our school. Okay. You, you would not lose your job necessarily. Uh, however, what would happen is people like me and, and your peers that review your research productivity every year would say, hey, what's up, man? Hey, Brad, you haven't published anything in like five years. What's going on? Uh, uh, and you could tell us a big story about your hard luck, or you could just say, I just haven't felt like it or whatever, or I started my hedge fund or whatever right. you did. And then eventually that you would just be assigned more teaching. Okay. And we don't often deal with this because the idea is that you give people tenure, they're addicts at publishing. Yeah. <laughs> so they'll just keep doing it because they like doing it. Like, that's what we're looking for. Like, you know, okay, this person's just going to do this regardless. And I would, I really, I love doing it. I love writing this stuff. I love doing the research. I love the, seeing it in print and, and talking to other people about it. So yeah. I would do it, you know, anyway. 
but um but yeah and 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 so there's all sorts of incentives there's also funding tied to your publication rate uh so for example your research funding budget would very quickly shrink away in nothing and then eventually the dean's office would be like hey uh dude or gal you're not uh you're not publishing like you used to and uh we got a few more classes that need to be taught here so they're going to get they're going to get their value Principal. out of your salary summer support is also something they'll hang over your head so stop yep. uh, stop paying you over the summer because you're not not you're not working producing. i i got it. it that's actually very interesting to me and i think that it'll be interesting to our listeners kind of about the background and for me it's it's always been follow the money right and money is is a big motivator uh so i think that this is actually oh yeah to pull the curtain back a little bit to see this i think is insightful for our listeners yeah, this could make all the difference between a 0.5% raise or a 1% raise for uh, Greg and I. It, it could be huge, uh, or this year it wouldn't make any difference at all in most universities. But uh, what is the saying? People have never fought so hard when the stakes were so low. Yeah, that's um, so true. But it does make a difference, and Greg's absolutely right in your research funding, because that's that tends to be competitive, and it's not guaranteed. And so if you're not publishing, you stand to lose up to, you know, well, it depends on the university, but, you know, it could be up to a third of your salary. Okay, let's, and I have one uh, more question then, Jeff. When it comes to research funding, sure. does yeah. the, where you receive your funding from introduce bias into papers? No. Uh, well, it shouldn't. Uh, it certainly could. What do you think? Um, but it does not uh, for most people, because we're usually not researching the industry that funded us. So as you know, Brad, I do most of my stuff about how entrepreneurship can address climate yep. change. And uh, the Koch brothers and their various organizations like that story. Well, the Koch brother now like that story because it sounds like, oh, this guy, you know, wants to do market-based approaches to solving climate change. And so I've been approached for funding by various organizations called things like People against tyranny or, you know, uh, <laughs> freedom is good. I'm being facetious, yeah. but that is about what these things are called. And when you go and Google, I'm like, oh, that's a Koch brothers, like, you know, front organization to buy academics. I'm not taking it. So it depends on your context, yep. right? Like you, you don't want to take money from the people you're researching or the industries that your research raises problems with. On the other hand, you know, I've been funded by the Shane Diamond company here in Colorado. I've Never even thought about writing a paper about diamonds in my life. They're just interested in supporting entrepreneurship research. And uh, the Shaman family has been very generous to us. So I see no bias or anything there. But usually people want to support research that shows something they care about. And, and Shane and, and, and the Shane family are very passionate about social responsibility and business. So they wanted to help support some of the research I was doing, which was, which was nice. Very nice. Oh, that's really interesting, actually. I'm, I'm going to give him a toast for my white wine right here at 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, this is to the Shane family. Continue to support Jeff's research. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that'd be great. <laughs> How about you, Greg? I mean, what do you think? Does, does funding bias research? Or? I think it's a, it's a very minimal problem in business schools. Business schools generally have different funding models from relying on external funding. And so as a result of that, we sort of paid our salary no matter what. I mean, in, in my case, I've got a, a sort of professorship from a Larry and Barbara Schaff, as you pointed out, they're individuals. They've really got no stake in the game. They're not trying to influence in any way. They just like Indiana University, they're alums, and they want to support what we're doing here. So I think in, in other domains or other disciplines, it can be a lot more contentious. If you're studying nutrition and you're getting all your money from Coca-Cola, uh, then you might be influenced. Um, but it, but in business schools, it's really a minimal, minimal. Yeah. Perspective. Yeah. And it, it, it is, it is absolutely, um, 
rampant uh, political action groups funding professors with expectation of certain points of view will be supported. Uh, it absolutely is happening out there uh, for sure. And uh, you definitely see it uh, in the environmental space at big time. At least I do. That's the, that's the space where I see more. I think people tend to have more at stake than, than a lot of the studies we do in business uh, in that case. Right. And I was not casting aspersions on either of these two fine gentlemen that I sharing the microphone with oh, today. Oh, no, I did. <laughs> uh, but I, right. No, I just want to make that clear for the record. But I do think that overall, it is interesting to see a lot of these papers that we're talking about actually how are they being underwritten and why? And I think that that's important as well, too. Yeah. And as Greg says, most of it's underwritten by business schools themselves. Uh, you know, business schools have a very different model. And when you go across campus and you talk to, uh, say, uh, well, so I'm part of this Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute, so I was jokingly reeling off my titles. Uh, you know, I talk to people over there who are actual scientists that do things with physics and, you know, building efficiency and improving uh, solar cell efficiency. And they want me to join grants and things like that. I'm like, well, I don't really need to join a grant. Like, what do you mean you don't need to join a grant? You have to be on a grant. I mean, you, you need to maintain your funding. I'm like, well, no, I'm just, I just get paid either way. And, and in the sciences, they've got, you know, raise money from NSF and, and other foundations and private grants. And there's a lot more pressure on that fundraising aspect of the job. So it's very different. Awesome. All right. Well, okay. So we've now discussed academic publishing and, and we've discussed the first two words of Craig's paper here on Creative Distillation, uh, you know, brought to you today by the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship. And I'm sure the Deming Center will be most impressed in our elaborate discussion of the first two words of Greg's paper. Research funding, <laughs> research funding and sour beer. Okay. Well, actually, you know, the Deming Center, we do a lot. I mean, that's you know, all those PhD students we talked to, we gave them pretty big chunks of change to support their research. And I think those are the people that really need the help more than, than, you know, I or Greg, you know, we have good jobs, we're paid fine salaries, but as an entrepreneurship PhD student, that's not the case. You know, you're, you're definitely looking for every penny you can scrape together to try to get your research done. So we're getting ready to do some more grants to them. That's where a lot of the Deming Center's efforts goes to help those people rather than the faculty necessarily. The faculty are doing okay. They're, they're fine. But uh, the paper actually is called Entrepreneurial Hustle. Uh, which Brad says he would almost pay $49 to read, but not quite. Navigating uncertainty and enrolling venture stakeholders through urgent and unorthodox action. That's not so bad. That's, that's, uh, it's think, understandable. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a, a, a one thumb up. Uh, it's certainly better than some of the other ones that we've, we've discussed. So uh, Greg, so far, so good. That is high praise, Greg. All right. Great. So Greg, why don't you, uh, this paper just came out, right? I mean, it's uh, well, 2020 reasonably by academic standards, it just came out. I had not read it before today. Boy, I thought it was super interesting. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about it, Greg? Like what, what's this paper about and what were you guys trying to do? So one of the things that really intrigues me and I think about a lot, and I think about it partly because of my own experience. So um, I was an entrepreneur, I actually started a business while I was in my MBA program, uh, an, an e-learning business called Learning Lab, um, and built that up and then sort of had a, had a pretty unceremonious exit and started teaching then and only then went into a PhD program. And, and one of the things once I got into doing a PhD program and now all of a sudden I had to research, one of the things I thought about was what do entrepreneurs actually do and does their action on a day-to-day -day basis make any kind of difference? And is there anything that distinguishes their actions from other people's actions? And then I, I found a, a person who sort of identified with that in Sarah Sarasvathy, 
who uh, Jeff had worked with and, and knows. And she was visiting the University of Washington where I was at. And she said, you know what you need to study? You need to study what entrepreneurs actually do, the micro actions they take on a day-to-day basis. And I thought that was cool. And I did a little bit of work in that space and then sort of drifted off into other, other spaces. But that notion of micro actions of entrepreneurs and what they do from day to day, how they execute from hour to hour or from task to task stu- stuck with me and was something I wanted to get back to. And then the other thing that I'm uh, a bit of a junkie for is podcasts. Um, and so I got into the How I Built This podcast and was listening to these things and said, hey, there's something interesting here. We could dive into these How I Built This podcast and into the, the nuance of the stories and into the actions that are underpinning everything they're saying and distill something more interesting. And uh, so I cobbled together uh, some transcripts from some of these podcasts and we started coding them and started saying, what's really going on here? And out of that was born this idea of, hey, one of the things that's at least necessary, maybe not sufficient, but certainly necessary. So it's common across every single one of these, these ones is this sort of notion of doing whatever it takes, acting with urgency, just operating with a sense of, of I've got to make this happen no matter what. And so we try to label that, try to distill down what that was and try to unpack what it meant for each of these businesses that was being formed. What, what sort of outcomes, positive or negative, might it have for each of these interesting businesses on the How I Built This podcast, and and hence came to this notion of entrepreneurial hustle and uh, look for a place to get it published. That's pretty darn cool. And this actually is related to our earlier conversation. Like, so you guys, like, you know, you didn't have to go do like five years of R&D in the lab and like, you know, go out and test a prototype and try to get a Department of Defense contract for your scientific research here, you transcribe the podcast, publicly available data. I mean, that's something we can do in this field that's really kind of unique, I think. Yeah. And, and I think as, as entrepreneurship has taken off into the cultural sort of zeitgeist, there are interesting sources of data. There are people revealing um, insights about what they do on a day-to-day basis, um, about how they think about things, about how they communicate with the, the world just through general channels that mean we don't need to necessarily spend tons of time any longer doing surveys, which people all lie on anyway, or yeah. trying to uh, go out and actually physically spend time with entrepreneurs because there's so much that's revealed just in, in their day-to-day existence. And, and we can take advantage of that as researchers. Awesome. So- and it's interesting you were talking about Saris because, like, you're by definition studying the people there on on this podcast are are successful. So some would say, like, from an academic standpoint, wow, you're just sampling on the dependent variable of success there, Greg. Uh, so how can you know what these entrepreneurs really do? Like, what would you, you sound say exactly to- like the reviewers <laughs> on the paper, Jeff? Yeah, well, I'm good at it. That's why I'm on the editorial board of so many fine journals, Greg, because I've mastered how to say this. By the way, we won't go on another sidetrack, but Greg is the is an editor at our premier theory journal. So I want to have a discussion sometime with Brad about theory. 
So we'll have you back for that. That that should be fun. Brad will love that, I'm sure. I will. Can't you wait for that, Brad? Nothing nothing ground uh, in reality at all. Just theory. No, no, no. I, I love it. But you know, remember, part of uh, creative distillation is distilling academic research. So we have actionable results for entrepreneurs on the ground. And when I hear Greg talk, I'm thinking, no. I mean, yeah, tell me something I didn't know. And Greg, as a, as a prior entrepreneur, and I would say probably still in your DNA, did, isn't this kind of the no? Of course, this is the case. I think that's true, that of course, this is the way you need to behave. No entrepreneur who's out there, you know, pounding the streets or figuring out how to plug a resource gap or figuring out how to create a prototype is going to argue with this notion. Where it is really interesting, Brad, is is in the classroom. So you get into the classroom and you're in the classroom and you, you're, you're teaching these guys all the time or guys and girls and, and so on. And you see, I can quite quickly distill down who could have a, go, a shot at this. They're not necessarily going to be successful, but who could put themselves into the ring and who's it's not even worth doing based on this notion of hustle. And so I, I often give students, I, I give them a sort of mini test. I give them three tasks and see the extent to which they hustle in trying to fulfill those tasks. Go and meet one person, go and build a prototype, go and do this. And if they can hustle enough to get that done, then maybe they've got a shot. If they don't, then I recommend them to go and you know get your resume ready to go and get a job. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's very easy to distill down. And I can split my class who've all self-selected to take an entrepreneurship subject by the extent to which they do this stuff or they're not willing to. So is it DNA-based that this is something that runs through someone's blood or is it interest in a specific topic or solving a specific problem? It's a really good question. I don't know for sure. I've tried to sort of monitor it just within myself. And I realized that some things, I'm almost always trying to set up a barrier or always trying to think, oh, what's the rational, logical, long-term plan that I would follow through on here as opposed to the immediate next action. And so I do think it is somewhat contextual or am I as an entrepreneur engaging with a problem that I really care about and I want to solve, or am I just doing this because it seems like something I should maybe do and I, I behave differently depending on those. So my gut instinct, I, the, the paper doesn't get into this, but my gut instinct is that it's about people pairing up with problems that they really care about and they care about so much that they're willing to really do whatever it takes to make that happen as opposed to waiting for things to come to them or making the excuse that they can't get resources or I don't know, struggle, struggling with whatever the next barrier is. Yeah, I believe what you're saying wholeheartedly just through my life experience. I see that. I see that with students as well. But, but I don't think it's a surprise, right? If, if you find something that you're passionate about, and, and, and I would say passion's not enough obsessive about, right? It's that level. It's not about taking an interest. It's, it's something that becomes all-consuming to you. And you'll do anything that you, you have to do to keep it moving forward. That's, that's how yeah. I look at it. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting things was we with this paper, we started to realize that it impacts more than just resources, which is often what people think. Oh, entrepreneurs don't have resources, hence they hustle, which in this case means they operate with a sense of unorthodoxy and urgency. That's how we sort of described it. The unorthodoxy is they do things that surprise most people. And the urgency is that they're not willing to wait a week to get it done. They go and make it happen now. And people often think that that's just associated with, oh, they're plugging the resource gaps. 
But really what we sort of distilled down from unpacking these interviews a little further and then running an experiment was they do it in order to learn and to figure out stuff that they didn't otherwise know. Um, so there's a, a learning piece to it. They do it to establish that they're actually legitimate and they, they, they have a right to be doing this. They're not aware that they're creating this legitimacy, but it's changing people's minds about who they are. They do it to create and build out opportunities that didn't otherwise exist to really execute in interesting ways that people might not have thought there's an opportunity there, but because of the way they've acted, they build out an opportunity and they, they do it to establish connections that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So there's actually an array of different things that come from this idea of operating with a sense of urgency and a sense of unorthodoxy that you might not immediately connect with it, but it has a range of outcomes that are, are potentially positive for the people who are willing to do this. Um, how do general societal rules come into this, right? I mean, is it in a sense when they're in this zone, do rules even matter, right? I mean, if you need to get things done, how, did you even look into that? Are they always pushing the envelope everywhere they're going, not, not only moving their venture forward, but doing anything that they can within their, their universe to, to pull this off? Uh... I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, is, is the question, do they do this in all spheres of their life or are they just doing it in the sphere in which yeah, they're starting I, I, I think, I think it's Yeah, I think it comes to the life question. Is this, is this kind of how they live their lives beyond their venture or is, is their life just consumed by the venture? Uh, yeah, I, I think there is a, a sense that it is quite strongly tied to the venture. I can't say for sure, but one of the, one of the things we did actually did a follow-on paper where we sort of experimented with people and we introduced them to the idea of hustle and gave them permission to hustle and noticed that they behaved differently after that. So they were engaging in an entrepreneurial effort and we said, here's this idea of hustle and we've attributed the notion that if you want to hustle, you want to operate in an unorthodox way, sort of bump up against the rules a little bit and do things differently and operate with a sense of urgency. And you don't always need to get the perfect outcome. You're not always optimizing for the perfect outcome. You're optimizing to learn in the next stage of whatever you're doing. And, and we found that that radically increased their inclination to act and their willingness to move forward and their willingness to take action. And so we called it permission to hustle and giving people permission to hustle actually changed the way they viewed the next task ahead of them such that they would take action quicker, learn quicker, and hence create more momentum for what they were doing. Can you provide an example of permission? Yeah, but permission to hustle. That has huge implications for teaching because like I notice this all the time, like a lot of times our students, particularly, I mean, I think our MBA students, a lot of times in the first year of their program, it is drilled into them that we are going to teach you to be a master of prediction. You're going to learn how to forecast, how to check the market, how to make a, you know, make a strategy, lay out the plan, lay out the goals. Your, your job is to know the answers. And then when I teach entrepreneurship electives to second years, I'm like, no, no, no. You don't know the answers and you're not going to either, but you still need to do things. And like you, like you, Greg, when I'm teaching entrepreneurship, I make them go do things. I'm like, you have to go talk to people. You have to actually try to sell a product you don't even have. You have to sell a product you don't even know how to make. Like, you know, go try to get someone to give you money. And in that route, what you're looking for is, and what I thought was really interesting about this is the unorthodoxy part. The idea that like, 
generally in our educational system in the United States, and even more so, I would argue, in many parts of the world, you are not taught to behave in an unorthodox behavior. You are taught that is the way to be ostracized, to not get resources, to, you know, I mean, from the time we're very small children, to not behave. And you're telling me that people taking more unorthodox or unexpected action actually increased the propensity for stakeholders to want to get involved with them. Am I interpreting the paper correctly? Because to me, that is quite surprising, or at least on the surface, it seems like it could be. Yeah. So the second part of this paper, what we did was we created this sort of vignette scenario where we created the sort of typical path that one might take where you build out a business plan, you try and use the plan to go and raise money, and you're sort of following what might be the traditional recipe. And then we manipulated pieces within that and changed it up that the person's taking immediate action. They're not getting perfect outcomes each time. And sometimes it's a little bit messy, and, but it's always got this unorthodox, urgent notion to it. And we manipulated just seven elements of the vignette, about a two thirds of a page read up about a person and exposed that to a bunch of potential venture stakeholders mm -hmm. and said, the, the basic question, which of these two is more legitimate as an entrepreneur and would you be more likely to support and it was radically more the people who were unorthodox. So the people who were doing things outside of the recipe that we often thought in the past is the sort of staged approach to launching a venture. Yeah. What do you think? My Brad? wife would agree That's with true. you. <laughs> that, that a little more unexpected, maybe? I mean, I mean, not to you, but to most people. Yeah, I, I, I don't think this, to someone like Brad, and I've, I've listened to a few of your podcasts, I don't think this is news. This is right. like, yeah, this is, this, is, this is how we get things done. Right. And, and so my implications are not necessarily for the people out there who are serial entrepreneurs, who this is how they live their life. And the next opportunity that comes on their desk, they're just going to hustle to make it happen anyway, without thinking that that's what they're doing. My implications are for the next 18-year-old or 19-year-old or 25-year-old who signed up for an MBA program and, and who's been trained to find a positive MVP, I mean, MPV before they take any action. Right. And I'm not going to do anything until I find that to realize that if they want to enter this world of entrepreneurship, that is going to kill them. That is mm -hmm. going to get them nowhere. And so, I love this paper. Um, and so, <laughs> so, so that's the notion that if you, if you are looking for those certain more predictable more what you think are upfront valid outcomes, you're going to paralyze yourself into doing absolutely zero. I love it. Actually, it sounds like my first day in MBA class in, in the speech that I give them and it's pretty much forget everything that you've learned right now, just throw it all out and start fresh. Uh, yeah, but exactly. But, but my question, my question, Greg, to you, and I'm sorry, mid drink is how do you give someone permission for this entrepreneurial hustle? What does that look like? Yeah. So in the context of how we did it, we explained to them what hustle was just based on the, the prior paper that we had written and said, we identified that these people who started Airbnb or Spanx or uh, Instagram or whatever, this was how they acted. And so we give you permission to act in a similar way to replicate the notion of operating in an unorthodox way and trying to be as urgent as possible and not expecting to create perfect outcomes each time. And it was sort of just saying to them, look, it's okay not to try and be perfect. It's okay not to try and get everything lined up before you take action. It's okay to try things out. And all of a sudden, way more action, utilizing 
technological solutions that on the surface seem like rudimentary or, oh, but they're not going to be able to do this. Or we could just use Dropbox to do this little piece instead of having coding up something that's sophisticated or just use Google Forms for this thing. And being willing to do that and then learning from that and iterating from that and then being able to take the next step of action. So it was literally just conveying to them what this concept is and the fact that it's okay to do this and not to expect a perfect outcome. Yeah, that's that's cool. oh, yeah, it's super important for technologists and engineers. So I'm teaching a class right now and it's about half engineering and technology students and half MBAs. And, you know, we were talking about convincing MBAs to act unorthodox and without, you know, getting the right answer necessarily. Holy cow, you take someone that's, uh, you know, a PhD in engineering and you try to tell them that. Not, not all of them. I mean, but, but, you know, they've been trained and they're incredibly smart people, obviously, or they couldn't have done the work that got them there. But they are not used to saying, I'm just going to take action, even though I don't know the answer. And God knows, do we want them to? Do we want the people designing the next airport we fly out of uh, after the pandemic to like just, oh, well, I'm just going to try some stuff. Hopefully it'll be cool. I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, but, you know, I think that's an incredibly powerful lesson for them. And, and I thank you for the paper because, you know, I use a lot of Saris's work, of course. And, uh, you know, Greg alluded to Sarah Saris Fathew. I cannot wait to get on this podcast someday. So, Saris, I doubt you heard this, but we're going to get you on here. And uh, you and Brad are going to be peas in a pod. That'll be hilarious. She is just a wonderful woman, was my dissertation supervisor, an incredible researcher, uh, and just brilliant. And, and what Greg's doing here, I think, builds a ton on her work just to get to more specifics, because her work is so insightful about talking about, look, you know, expert entrepreneurs don't necessarily know the goal at the end, other than I'm trying to start a business. And they're open to changing and evolving the venture as people come on board and change it. And that's just such a foreign concept to, to economists and to, and to students a lot of times. But Greg's getting more specific here and saying it's that unorthodox behavior. To me, that's what like jumped out of the paper is being like telling your students, hey, you know what? Being weird is going to be actually helpful to you because that's going to make people think you actually have something. I see this with speakers in the class. They want to talk to the, the more eccentric students are in, in entrepreneurship. I don't think this is true in all of our classes. But in entrepreneurship, the students there are a little more interesting, a little more non-traditional they do tend to attract more interest from mentors. I've noticed that. I've never thought about it before today, really, in a concrete way. I mean, what do you think, Brad? Do you see a similar thing? You, you see yeah, so I, I'm actually thinking about what you just said about engineers. And I'm a co-founder of an optical engineering firm, which actually just took on $9 million at the end of last year in C round. Uh, we have world-class laboratories. And the joke around the office when I was there was, if you give an engineer a world-class laboratory, 80,000 bucks a year and a great pizza every day, they'll never come out of the lab, ever. And so I think this <laughs> relates to me in that respect, right? That Because they're yeah. always, they, they think that there's this next iteration and iteration, and they have no concept about putting something out in the market and getting paid for it and then iterating right. again. They don't even know what the hell that means, right? They're looking for perfection and it doesn't exist. Yep. So um, I, I think yep. in that case, it would definitely resonate. You don't have to tell them to be weird. They're already there. And I'm saying that because I love engineers, but it's, it's true. They, all, they look at the world differently, right? And they think that they can de well, design their way out of issues. And I think that's actually sure. cool. Oh, I, I, I love them. I'm, I mean, I teach a class on renewable energy, Brad. And like, I'm like, uh, <laughs> anyone in this class could design a better technological solution than me. Like, I am right. not the guy for that. If you thought that was going to happen in this class, you, you're talking to someone who's a journalism major. 
You know, oh, yeah. I took logic as my math in, in my undergrad. Like you, I ain't that guy. So did I. Uh, did you? Awesome. Yeah. Logic, oh, that's the guy. Yeah. That's hilarious. Love logic. I did too. Well, Greg, did, did we get it right? Like, do we have the essence of the paper distilled down? I mean, I, I'm focusing on just one small aspect, but, but that's just because to me, that was the aspect that was like, so fascinating. Like that, you know, being unorthodox is helpful. Yeah, that's clearly a piece of it. And I think the important thing is that this is determining more the entry point and do you have at least the basic necessary willingness to enter into this game as opposed to whether this is going to make you successful. We're not trying to predict who's going to be successful or not going to be successful, but with this construct, we can tell who's not going to have it, even have a shot. So if you're right. not willing to embrace the hustle, as we as we say here, or embrace hustle, then you may as well not even get into the game and, and, and go down a different path. So Wait a that, second, Greg. That's Let essence. me stop you one second. Can the hustle part, the component that you're talking about, can that be learned, though? I've seen people, people have walked into my classroom very, very timid on the front end and come out, and I don't know if it's a confidence level. It's probably a combination of many factors. But can that be taught? I, I'm not sure I would call it teaching because I'm not sure you're actually distilling knowledge but I think it can be ignited there's a level of self-awareness of the fact that now number one I don't need to I don't need to have the answer before I start number two I'm not looking for perfection number three I'm just trying to get the very next step done as opposed to knowing what the multitude of steps are going to be and if you shift that mindset or ignite that perspective in a person and they care enough about the direction that they're going down, then I think you can ignite it. But it's not a notion of teaching how to do something or understanding a spreadsheet or even understanding lean startup methodology. It's more a recognition of how I'm going to treat my immediate next steps and what's going to invoke me to enact those immediate next steps as opposed to wanting to have a a very well-predefined plan. Yeah, I think that was well said. I I'd love that actually. Absolutely. Yep. I got nothing to add as usual. I'm nope, wild by Greg and his work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I think that's that's just great. And I mean, I, I think it speaks to the the idea of giving students a place where they can experiment with it. I think that's the best thing we can do in entrepreneurship classes a lot of times, give them a safe space to develop this muscle. Because I could stand there and tell them things all day long about minimum viable product and, you know, all this kind of thing and whatever. But I mean, until they actually try it and in the best cases, and I, honestly, in the best cases, don't succeed at first, but then persist and then do succeed. That's where I always see the difference. I always see the difference when students struggle or some of them are just naturally just. And the other thing that's kind of cool about stuff like this, Greg, is I'm, I wonder if you've ever had this experience like, you know, Brad's kind of like, yeah, of course. I remember I, I showed up one time to teach a summer class in, uh, in Denmark and I'm sitting there and I've got my 20 MBA students. I'm going to teach this like four day entrepreneurship thing. And there's this guy in the front row, just sitting there with his arms crossed, looking at me like I have dog crap on my shoe or something. I'm like, Whoa, what'd I do to this guy? And he's just like, first thing, you know, we asked, Oh, let's introduce him. Well, he's like, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've, I've sold three companies. I'm doing my MBA for fun now. And I'm really curious what you have to say. I'm like, Oh, but you know, I started to talk about effectuation and theories like this. I saw him like kind of just going like, huh. And at the break, he comes up and it's not that he was learning anything in particular from me, 
it's that he was like, wow, this is cool to know. This is how I've always thought. And I've always thought I was a weirdo, but this is just how I think. And it's really nice to see someone like saying that's a good thing because usually I've just annoyed people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so some of these things are almost about how, and, and you might frame them as, as theories trying to describe how expert entrepreneurs think in the case of effectuation or how they behave in this case can just be validation for people who've always acted or thought in one of those ways who might have might have had some success, but they haven't been able to distill it down and give it a name. Um, and now they can say, oh, I, I, it's actually got the, the way I've thought about or acted in certain scenarios has actually got some validation. Right. And, and also, I think people often struggle to pass that along to their employees or to co-founders or to explain why they're doing what they're doing in a way. I think that's a useful yeah. toolkit for them. At least this gentleman thought so. So yeah. every now and then uh, we get we get to feel good. About and, I, and I would say this is the approach that we take at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado Lead School of Business. <laughs> uh, I got it in, but I actually am serious. I mean, I, yeah, they're, no, they're... I, I, that, this is absolutely our approach. Right. Uh, we always have people being taught by entrepreneurs who are making them take action. Yep. Uh, now they, they may talk to academics like me, but they're also going to talk to entrepreneurs. And uh, I suspect uh, being in Greg's class is a pretty joyful experience for most people too. We would, we need to have Greg, uh, next time you have a sabbatical, we got to have you come out to Boulder. I'll take you to drink some sour ales here. And uh, I think this is just great. So thank you for coming on. <laughs> awesome. This was, this was great guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Love your work guys. Uh, I actually did did listen and have been listening and been really valuing what you're doing. So I am a podcast junkie. So you're selling to the converted here, but I, I genuinely do like it. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for doing it. And thanks for having me. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you for showing up and, and, and allowing us to tease you a little bit too. <laughs> sure. Worth 49 bucks, right, Brad? No nope. <laughs> way. Uh, but, it's, but it's a good discussion. Uh, all right. So uh, once again, I'm Jeff York, uh, Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship and Research Director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship, uh, your host for Creative Distillation, uh, here as always with Brad Werner, the Teaching Director for the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business. Uh, we were joined today by Greg Fisher, uh, who is an Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. And the title of his paper again, Entrepreneurial Hustle, Navigating Uncertainty and Enrolling Venture Stakeholders Through Urgent and Unorthodox Action, which I think is just a crackerjack paper and a decipherable title in the words of Brad. So that's a first for creative distillation. Brad liking a title or at least giving it one thumbs up. So yeah, one thumb. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to hit the little subscribe button. Uh, send cases of sour beer, checks, anything else you think we would be interested in having. Criticism, comments, we love it all. And uh, reach out to us at the Deming Center if you're interested in connecting or coming on the podcast to discuss your research. We would love to hear from you. And uh, hopefully not too far in the future, we'll be able to do this in person with you. And uh, hopefully we'll have Greg and other guests coming out to beautiful Boulder, Colorado, where we will go enjoy some beverages in some of our local breweries and distilleries. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.